0: I want to turn back towards the book of Colossians today and remind you where we've been. Colossians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul with some help from his apprentice Timothy, writing a letter to a church that they have never met, a church they had never visited, a church in the city of Colossae, which is in modern day Turkey. This was a church of young Gentile believers, citizens of of the Roman Empire. We don't know how many of them had citizenship and how many didn't, but certainly they were all uh, people from within the Roman Empire, and that'll come into play in the portion of the letter we read today. Uh, It's a letter about growing up, growing up spiritually. This is a church that had received the gospel with great joy, Uh, But a church that over its first few months, couple of years perhaps, had begun to uh, struggle a little bit had begun to struggle a little bit with some of the challenges that we all face as we grow up. And so Paul writes this letter to them to kind of encourage them and give them some clues that they're going to need as they continue this process of growing up. Two weeks ago, we heard him say, hey, part of growing up means recognizing just how big the tribe is. You guys might be small. You guys might not yet be uh, the majority in your city or in your community, but you are part of a tribe that stretches around the world and throughout time. Growing up also, and we Saw this last week means recognizing just how much you've changed. Sometimes we don't realize, we don't have the perspective to to look and realize just how much we've been changed, but we have been changed. We've been changed by the power of Jesus. And picking up there, what we see happen is the portion that we'll read today is a poem that, that Paul launches into. He says, You've been changed by the power of Jesus. And then he begins writing a poem in the ancient Greek language that he wrote. It's very apparent that he's writing poetry. Uh, rhythm and rhyme kind of get lost in translation a little bit, and so I've chosen to just kind of write this out for you on the screens in paragraph form. We're going to set aside the poetry part, Uh, just reading it as a paragraph will suffice, Uh, and we're actually just going to take the first half of this poem today. Next week, we'll look at the second half, but picking up where we left off in Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else and he holds all creation together. We're gonna to stop there for this week. As I said, there's more to the poem, but we'll look at it last week. The theme of this particular portion, I think is pretty clear and it's this, Jesus rules over all creation. That's what Paul's poem says. Jesus rules over all All creation. There's a few different emphases in the poem here. Jesus existed before anything was created. He's higher than anything in the created order. He's in charge of everything in creation, but they all go to this theme that Jesus rules over all creation. There's nowhere that we can go. There's nothing that we can see. There's no force that we can feel. There is nothing in all of existence that is not subject to the authority of Jesus. Everything that exists is less than Jesus. I'm going to say that one more time. Everything that exists is less than. Everything is less than. Non-Christians, I find, sometimes have this idea that, that we Christians have taken a very fine man in Jesus and unwittingly turned him into a god. They have the idea sometimes that we've taken this great wise philosopher and done something that he never intended. We've deified him or made him a god. Non-Christians, I find, sometimes have this idea that even the Bible never intends to say that Jesus is divine. This is a collection of teachings and advice and wisdom as to how to live. In this manner of thinking, the emphasis of scripture is on the moral character of Jesus, it's on the wisdom of Jesus, it's on the teachings of Jesus. And folks with this idea might ask, after all, isn't the central point of the Bible, God is love? Isn't that the main idea? Isn't that the central point of the Bible? And to that, I would say this, yes, the Bible says, that God is love. Yes, that's an important aspect of the Bible, but I do not believe that the central point of the Bible is that God is love. I believe the central point of the Bible is that Jesus is Lord. That's the central point of the Bible. Yes, it is true that God is love, but if we say that's what's most important and miss out on the fact that Jesus is Lord, we have not read the word responsibly. That phrase, Jesus is Lord, is so important. More important than anything else is the fact that God chose to dwell in form of a man who walked in creation. And that man, Jesus, has always, always, always ruled over all creation because he is God. And that's what Paul wants the Colossians to understand about Jesus. Jesus. He is God on display. He is God on display. When I wrote those words down in my notes, I took out my my phone and looked in the the photos app on my phone. I have just shy of 1200 photos and videos saved on my phone. Many of you have many more than that because I actually don't take a lot of pictures. So me, a guy who doesn't take a lot of pictures, I have nearly 1,200 photos and videos right at my fingertips. Images that I've taken. Now, I have infinitely more than that. I can see Kelly Greco in the back looking at her phone right now, because it's gotta be five or six figures, right? (laughs) There it is. Okay, infinitely more than that. I have access to Google. I can look up a picture and you can too of anything you can imagine. We have in front of us at our fingertips in this day and age, our computers, televisions. We have movies, we have billboards. We have the pictures in books and magazines. We have images all around us. We know what virtually anyone who has ever lived looks like. I remember many, many years ago, being at a, a Bears game, preseason Bears game. Pre-season game, not much was happening. Not very exciting, even for a guy who loves football, right? And all of a sudden, I could hear off to my left a, a, a roar going up in the crowd. The crowd was standing and cheering and I'm looking at the game going, there's literally nothing to be excited about right here and right now. But I can hear the crowd cheering and my buddies and I are kinda looking and, look, and finally we see what they're cheering. About, down on the field on the Bears' sideline walked Walter Payton, many years after his retirement. So he's not in uniform, but here comes sweetness walking around the sidelines in street clothes and a jacket. He doesn't have his number on the back. He doesn't have the name Payton on the back. He's not wearing the iconic helmet and, and the tape on his It's just Walter. It's just Walter and instantaneously, and for those of you young ones in the room, this was before Google. Okay, this was before four phones. But still, still instantaneously, tens of thousands of people knew, oh my goodness, that's Walter Payton. And he was just out to say hi to the guys near the end of the game. We had an image. We knew what he looked like. Images are important that way. But it wasn't always that way. The world that we live in is different than the way things used to be. In the ancient world, Many of the most important people in your life existed only as fragments of your imagination. You had no idea how to really picture them. And that's why it's noteworthy that in verse 15, Paul writes, Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. You want to know what God looks like? Take a look at Jesus. Now, the word he uses there, if you're into this Greek thing, is icon. You might have heard of it before. Christ is the visible icon of the invisible God. We're going to come back to that word a little bit later. Remember it. He's saying Jesus is the exact likeness of God himself. Do you want to know what God looks like? Look to Jesus. Now, remember, Paul is writing at a time when Jesus of Nazareth had been dead and buried and resurrected many, many years, about 20 years prior. And so it is unlikely that anybody in Colossae receiving this letter had ever actually seen Jesus with their own eyes. So I don't think he's speaking literally here. It wouldn't make any sense for him to say, want to know what God looks like, take a look at Jesus, because none of them had seen Jesus either. He's not speaking literally. He's not saying God has dark, wiry hair and dark eyes. He's not saying God has an olive complexion and kind of a carpenter's physique. That's not what he's saying here. Remember that word, icon? Jesus is the visible icon of the invisible God. Yes, that means he's the image or he's the likeness of God, but it has the connotation of manifestation or materialization. He's not just saying that Jesus looks like God with eyes of flesh, we can see him and he looks like God. He's saying his presence is God's presence. His nature is God's nature. His being is God's being. And since God's first work was to create, right? In the beginning, God created. We can now look to Jesus and understand that he is the means of creation. He's the means of creation. I counted on my calendar as of this morning, 48 days until Christmas, Christmas, of course, is the celebration of the birth of Jesus, and we often think of this as his first appearance in the scripture story. But we're mistaken, if that's what we think. The Bible is clear that Jesus was active in those very few, few, first few lines of your Bible. As God is speaking the universe into existence, Jesus is present and he is busy. As Paul puts it in verse 16, through him, God created everything. We sang a similar line a few moments ago, right? In him are all things, through him are all things. There was a teaching that gained some traction in the early years of the church. It's called Arianism. It's named after a bishop by the name of Arius who promoted this teaching Uh, That was finally put to rest at the council of Nicaea in 325 BC, a little history, I'm sorry, 325 AD, a little history for you. Arianism taught that Jesus was created by God, that he didn't exist, that Jesus didn't exist until God produced him. This is wrong. This is not what the Bible says. And the early church fathers had to put this teaching to rest and say, this is absolutely not what we believe. It's not what the Bible teaches arianism It's a bit of church history. But here we are, 2,000 years later, and I find that there are still Christians who are stuck on this point. We're stuck because we don't understand the nature of Jesus, the eternal nature of Jesus. We think of Christmas as the beginning when it really is not remotely the beginning of the existence of the Son of God. Maybe we have misunderstood what we mean when we say Son of God. When we say son of God, we do not mean that God produced Jesus. This is not a literal father and son relationship. I have a son. I produced a son. I existed before my son existed. He is a product of my life. None of those things are true of the divine father and the divine son. No, when we say... Jesus is the Son of God. Here's what we mean His position as Son has more to do with His role as the heir of everything that the Father has promised. Right? So the covenant that the Father made is fulfilled in the life of the Son. That's what we mean. We do not mean that one gave rise to the other, that one Produced the other, that one existed before the other existed. Now, that might sound like we're geeking out on theology, and after all, who really cares? But it is so important that we recognize that nothing is greater than Jesus, everything is less than Jesus. There is nothing and no one, Father included, that produced Jesus. He is before all things. And that's why we say he is Lord over all. Right. Now, these days, when we say that, I think we tend to think about the non-human elements of God's creation. Oh, he's Lord over the mountains and over, over the valleys and the oceans and the rivers and the forests and That's certainly biblical imagery. That is true and that is important. These things do all declare the lordship of Jesus, but that's not what Paul had in mind in this particular passage. When he's talking about Jesus being lord over all things, look at the list he makes. You'll find it in verse 16, such as thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities. He's talking about people, folks. Jesus is Lord over all. We could insert the word people there. He is Lord over all people. Now, we're going to come back to that idea a little bit later today, but Paul wants the Colossians to understand that there is no human authority that can rival the authority of Jesus because he is Lord over all. And here's, I think, really a better and more specific way of saying that. He is the essential component of the universe. Jesus is the essential component of the universe. How many uh, remember the the movies, Back to the Future? We have Back to the Future fans in the room today. Uh, one One of the movies of my childhood was the original Back to the Future. Do you remember what makes time travel possible? in Back to the Future, it's the flux capacitor. It's the flux, I don't think anybody knows what a flux capacitor is. But, you know, Doc Brown and Marty have the DeLorean sports car, right? And it's really just a sports car until you insert the flux capacitor. The flux capacitor is what makes time travel possible. Without it, you just have a souped up sports car. Jesus is the flux capacitor of the universe. <laughs> Without him, you just have a, a fancy cosmic petri dish. It, it's no wonder that the secular world devalues life and says things just happen. And it doesn't matter, and they come and go, and hakuna matata, and so on and so forth, right? It's no wonder that they devalue life because they're missing the flux capacitor. Without Jesus, everything just kind of is. It's a Petri dish. Stuff grows and dies and molds and comes and goes, and isn't it interesting? Look at it under a microscope. But we have a different perspective. Why? Because Jesus is Lord. He is the essential component of everything in the universe. Paul, unfortunately, had never seen the Back to the Future movies. And so he puts it a bit more eloquently in verse 17. He just says he holds all creation together. He holds all creation together. We sing a song that I'm reminded of when I I read these words. uh, Jesus at the center of it all. Jesus at the center of it all. From beginning to the end, it will always be. It's always been you, Jesus, at the center of it all. He holds all things together. There is nothing in the universe outside of his authority or his control. There is no rogue in the universe because he holds it all together. He is the essential component of the universe. Let's put a bookmark there. We've read through the text. I've more or less finished my outline. I've highlighted every point. We'll pick up the second half of the poem next week. The first half of the poem has a fairly straightforward theme. We've already said it. The lesson is apparent. Jesus rules over all creation. But there's something else going on here. And to catch it, we need to brush up on a little history. We need to brush up on a little history. So let me tell you a story. A couple of years before Paul wrote this letter to the Colossians, the Roman emperor, it was Claudius, died. Claudius died. He had ruled over Rome for nearly 14 years, which was a fairly long time, the preponderance of the adult lives of most of his subjects. Claudius was not a popular emperor. He was not the meanest emperor. He wasn't the cruelest emperor, but he just wasn't very popular. He was 63 years old when he died, which by their standards was fairly old. More than just being old, Claudius was old school. He was old fashioned. Although Rome was strengthened under his rule, a lot of the policies that Claudius reinstituted were old policies from from grandma and grandpa's day. A lot of the ways that Claudius liked to do things were were old manners from, from back in grandma and grandpa's day. There was not an idea that Rome was really culturally moving forward. He wasn't the kind of leader that that the masses could really get behind. He was certainly an effective politician, but he was not charismatic. He had health problems, a lot of health problems. So he was not a very commanding presence. Uh, a lot of the emperors were, were generals and military people and great athletes and dashingly handsome and things like this. Um, Claudius had lifelong handicaps and disabilities. He didn't look good as the emperor, uh, and he certainly wasn't the physical specimen that other emperors had been. Claudius was interested in books. Oh, my. Claudius's hobby was he liked to read and eventually write history books. People found him boring. By most accounts, the citizens of the Roman Empire we were looking forward to a change by the time Claudius died. And I should mention that like most emperors in this era, he didn't just die of old age, he was assassinated. And you could argue that that's because the people of Rome were most definitely ready for a change. So when Claudius died, his grand-nephew, a couple generations behind him, right? His grand-nephew becomes the new emperor. Now, his grand-nephew, Claudius had adopted as his own son, so the transition of power here was pretty clear. Claudius's grand-nephew takes the throne. Now, the new emperor, in contrast to Claudius, was only 17 years old. He was a young man. Not only was he a young man, by most contemporary accounts, he was quite handsome. He was an accomplished actor and a poet and a musician. And although usually in those days, jobs in the performing arts were reserved for slaves. Connie, are you blessed by that? They were reserved for slaves, but this new emperor had a habit of just jumping on stage with the slaves and playing a role to the great delight of the masses. People really got a kick out of that. They liked it. And by all accounts, he was quite good, although let's acknowledge nobody would have told the emperor otherwise. He also loved sports, he was very athletic, loved to ride chariots, he was very good at what he did. He built new stadiums for games throughout Rome, and he was very popular with the populace. His name is one that I'm sure you'll recognize, his name was Nero. Now, when we think of Nero, we think of the fire in Rome. We think of his descent into madness. If we think of him through a biblical lens, we'll remember that most of us think Nero was the emperor who had Peter and Paul killed. We'll think of the Christians that he persecuted, the bodies burning to light his gardens. We'll think of all the evil that he committed, the people he terrorized in his madness. But it didn't start out that way. In the beginning, the Roman people loved Nero because in him they saw a change. They saw a hope for a better future. He was very popular. They liked Nero. And one of the reasons that they liked Nero so much was the Roman propaganda machine. The Romans were great, at shaping the thoughts and the attitudes of the people that they ruled over. Long before social media or even mass media in the way we think of it, the Roman Empire was the best the world had ever seen at getting their message out. And one of the most important messages that they wanted to get out was this. The emperor can do anything. The emperor can do anything. You see, in years gone by, the Romans had said that their emperors were chosen by the gods to serve the way they did. But by the time Paul was writing to the Colossians, that nuance in the message had changed. No longer were the Romans saying our emperors were chosen by the gods. Now they were saying our emperors are gods. Our emperors are gods. They were building temples to the emperors. They were instituting days of worship where you didn't just honor the emperor, you worshiped the emperor because the emperor was a god. How did they get that message out? Well, one of the most effective ways they had of doing it was with coins. I have, and Brian, you can advance to this next picture, a picture of a gold coin. On this gold coin is the image of Nero. This is a coin that would have been used in the time that Paul was writing to the Colossians. And you can see that on the front of the coin, we have an image, an icon, if you will, of Nero, and it's got his titles around the edges. And then on the back side of the coin, there's a picture of Nero and his wife, and they're holding bowls, bowls of, of incense or wine or some sort of thing that would be used in a religious ceremony. This is a way of portraying them as, as high priests. Coins like this often would bear the title Nero Pontifex Maximus, meaning the great high priest. Does that title sound a little familiar from the New Testament? These bowls here signify his role as the great high priest. There's a second coin I want to show you on the next slide. This one is an image again of Nero. This would have been in circulation in the time Paul wrote to the Colossians. This is Nero, and this time he's wearing a a spiky crown. Uh, It's hard to see probably from the distance you're at, but this one looks like the crown worn by the Statue of Liberty. This is a traditional Roman sign of divinity. It's the crown worn by the gods. You may know that the Statue of Liberty was modeled after the Roman god Roma. And so she is wearing the very same spiky crown that the Roman gods, or in this case, Emperor Nero, would be depicted wearing. Coins like this would also bear titles. Titles like the Victorious One were common, or Our Lord. Son of God is a title you'll find often on coins like this, or the Supreme Ruler. I wanna show you another set of pictures. These pictures are two different statues of Nero, also part of the propaganda machine. Statues like this would be placed throughout the empire, so you would have an image, so you would have an icon. What does he look like? Do you wanna know what the great divine ruler looks like? Look to the icon. Images like these were all over the place, and and oftentimes they would have engravings under them telling you things about the emperor. We've uncovered one such engraving in a city not too far from Colossae, a city called Praene. And this engraving refers not to Nero, it's earlier. It refers to one of Nero's predecessors, Augustus, the one who had the throne during the days of Jesus Uh, I've got the text on the next slide. You can put it up for me, Brian. Let me read it to you just in part, this engraving about the emperor. Listen to these words. Since providence, which has ordered all things and is deeply interested in our life, has set in most perfect order by giving us Augustus, sending him as a savior, both for us and for our descendants, that he might end war and arrange all things. And since the birthday of the God Augustus was the beginning of the gospel for the world that came by reason of him. It's amazing to me how many of those phrases ring familiar in in my ears. Let me highlight just a couple of things that that engraving says. It says, Augustus' birthday marks the beginning of all good things. Refers to him as the God Augustus, not the Emperor Augustus, the God Augustus, his birthday marks the beginning of everything good. And then it says, and that's because the world exists because of him. Now look, folks, here's why I bring this up. These words and these phrases that I've tried to highlight for you, these aren't just random phrases that would appear in a single place. These phrases on coins and on these engravings and underneath the icons, they would appear again and again and again throughout the empire so that folks would hear the same phrases again and again and again. This is propaganda. These are really political slogans, aren't they? they simple little phrases that we wanna to attach to a particular leader, a particular politician, so that everybody knows and everybody understands what that politician is all about and why we should all love him. We have these, don't we? We have political slogans. I've got one more slide, I hope you enjoy this one. Some of the more famous political slogans in our world of recent years, feel the burn, make America great again, Change we can believe in. These are the same things. These are political slogans attached to one particular leader or another. Phrases that you don't just see in one place, phrases that we hear again and again and again and again, meant to arouse our excitement, meant to help us form and shape a good opinion so that we will lend our support to a particular politician. Nothing new. They were doing this back in Rome. And so let's review. And I wrote these out for you in in a little table that you'll see on the screen. Some of Rome's political slogans. The emperor is an image of the divine one. His birthday was the beginning of the gospel. He is the supreme ruler and the world came by means of him. Those are just four. We have many, many others Well, those are four that we can can point directly to and say these were slogans of what the folks were told to believe about their emperor. And so now let's remember what Paul has written. When Paul writes his letter to the Colossians and delves especially into this, this poem that we've read, he takes these slogans and he changes them to make them true about Jesus. The Romans say the emperor is an image of the divine one, but I tell you that Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. The Romans say that the emperor, his birthday was the beginning of the gospel, but we say that he existed, Jesus existed before anything was created, emperor or otherwise. The Romans say that our emperor is the supreme ruler, but God says that Jesus is supreme, over creation. The Romans say that the world came by means of him, but God says that through Jesus, God created everything. I think that if Paul were to write to the church in America today, he could have used the very same technique. His poem just would have come out a little bit differently. He would have said, hey, America, Do you want to feel the burn in your soul? Only Jesus can do that. He's the only one who will make you great again because he alone can provide a change we can believe in. Am I wrong? Am I wrong? So remember the point that we said, the point of the entire passage. I'm going to put it up again. Jesus rules over all creation. And remember that Paul wasn't talking about nature. He wasn't giving us a poetic view on the mountains and the oceans and the rivers and so on and so forth. Remember that Paul specifically referenced the lordship of Jesus over thrones, over kingdoms, over rulers, over authorities, You see, there are things that the world wants us to believe about the people who have been put into power over us. The propaganda machines of empires, whether it be Rome or America, these propaganda machines do their best to give credit to people for things that only Jesus can provide. They do their best to attach our expectations to people for things that only Jesus can provide. And so Paul's message to the Colossians, and church, I believe this is God's message to the American church today, is that yes, Jesus rules over all creation, so stop turning your politicians into gods. (laughs) Stop turning your politicians into gods. What we're hearing today is that growing up requires us to recognize that only Jesus can do what only Jesus can do. Everyone else is an imposter. Now, obviously, we don't live in a culture that believes that our leaders are literally divine. We don't have... Temples constructed in the way that the Romans had temples constructed. We have holidays in which we honor or recognize this one or that, but we aren't told to literally bow in divine worship. That we don't do. But we do live in a culture where Christians who have trouble reading or memorizing scripture to find out what God says have no trouble at all remembering what Tucker Carlson or Anderson Cooper have to say. We do live in a culture where Christians who habitually arrive late to worship come early and stand in line for a chance to see Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. We do live in a culture where Christians who say they have trouble sharing their faith seem to have no trouble at all sharing their politics through social media and inserting it into conversations where it's just not welcome. That's the world we live in. And perhaps... Most alarmingly, a huge number of professing Christians in this country have trouble distinguishing their faith from their perspective on race relations or climate change or gun laws or mask mandates or vaccine policies. Certainly every Bible-believing Christian must think what I think about those things because they don't know how to tell the difference. Have we made politicians our gods? Have we ascribed to people the hope and the trust, the authority, the allegiance, and the responsibility for our welfare that only Jesus should have? I believe that God's word shows us that in too many cases, perhaps we have. And so when we think, well, if this one gets elected, then everything will be better because he or she will have the power to finally do things right. When we think that, we're putting a person in Jesus's place. And on the other side of that coin, pun intended, when we think, and if the other one gets elected, everything will be worse. Everything will be terrible, because he or she will have the authority to do everything wrong. And we rob Jesus of the authority that only he should have. We've made politicians to be our gods. And I think that the words that Paul has for the Colossians in a culture that that practices this very, very literally are a wake-up call to a culture who doesn't realize how much we have done the same thing. How much we have done the same thing. And so let's hear one more time what Paul has to say. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can see and the things we can't see, such as, Thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Let's pray. Our Lord Jesus Christ. I'll say it again. Our Lord Jesus Christ, our only Lord Jesus Christ, the only one to whom is due all honor, not most of the honor, all of the honor, all of the glory, because you alone have all of the power, not some of the power, not most of the power. You alone have all of the power. So our Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that we, your people, the citizens of your kingdom, that we would live according to the kingdom that we call home that we would live according to the ways of the man whose name we bear. Forgive us, Jesus, for even having the inkling to put someone else in your place. Forgive us as probably many people in Colossae did of thinking, oh, there's a new guy in charge now. Things are gonna be better because of him. We come before you today and recognize that things in this little K kingdom might get better and they might get worse. But when they do, it won't be because of him. It'll be because of you. Every authority, every power, every ruler, and every throne is held together by the king above every king. There are lords with little L's that will try and impose their will on us, try and lead us, try and guide us, try and tell us that they are our savior. But we know the Lord of lords. We know the Lord of Lords. And so, Lord, when we pray that we would be filled with your Holy Spirit, it's not so that we can check off another box on our religious to-do list. It's so that we would be filled with the very presence of the one who we would serve. It's so that every moment of every day we would never be distant from the the reminder, the truth, the presence that tells us whose we are and for whom we live. We give you all honor and we give you all glory in the name that stands high above every other name, the name at which every knee will bow, every tongue confessing that all along From day one till this day there has been but one Lord and his name is Jesus. That is the name in which we pray. And everybody says, amen. 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 God's blessing be upon you this week. Have a good day.